so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to episode two of the new format of the ERLC podcast. If you're new to the podcast, uh, last week we premiered this new format where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on the things Christians need to know about what's going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, along with my co-host this week, Lindsay Nicolay. Hi, everyone. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello. That was a strong hello. Oh, my word. Well, I'm excited. This is week two. What? <laughs> Can you get excited, please? All right. I really want to get these introductions right. I'm Josh Wester, along with my co-host, Queen of the Listicle, Lindsay Nicolay. I thought you were going to call me Queen Latifah. Hi, everyone. And Tennessee's favorite son, Brent Leatherwood. I wasn't prepared for that that intro for you, but that me one either. that one works for me. Okay, so I'm I'm in. One more time. Oh, oh, Josh Wester. I'm Josh Wester, along with my co-host, Queen of the Listicle, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And Tennessee's favorite son, Brent Leatherwood. I'm here. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking to a special guest, JT English, who's a pastor down at the Village Church in Texas and also oversees the Village Church Institute. But before we get to that, let's go ahead and focus on the ERLC. Lindsay, what's the ERLC talking about this week? Okay, well, before I get to that, I just have to warn everyone that our co-hosts are in an interesting mood. So we'll see what this is like today. Hey, we're ready to go. Yeah, Brent's I'm, a little moody, I feel no, like. No, I'm, I'm ready to go. Josh is a little jumpy. But. R- granted, our intro took four takes, but you know. <laughs> Okay, well, getting back to what we're talking about the ERLC this week. So I think all of our pieces are noteworthy. It's hard to highlight a few, but there are several important cultural pieces to point out this and week. And as the queen of content, it's actually your job. No, it's to, the queen to do of that. listicles. Oh, well, could just true. be the queen of everything. But okay. On a more serious note, on Monday, we remembered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the work he did to combat racism in our country. One of our writers, Brittany Salmon, wrote a piece on how we talk to our kids and teach them about King's legacy, but also about the evil of racism and it's still existing in our culture today and in in our hearts. So she gives three suggestions and just telling you those real fast. Scripture, being honest, reading a diversity of books. So go to our site to check that out and find more information on those on those points. Also, we had a piece up about um, increasing religious persecution in China. Late last year, Wang Yi, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly, um, a pastor of a large church in China, was sentenced to nine years in prison. And the government views Christianity and other religions as a threat. So I bring this piece up to remind us uh, about our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing religious persecution. They don't enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy here in America. We need to be faithful to remember them and to pray for them. 
Yeah, that's a good word. Before we move on to uh, one final piece on our side, I just want to say that, you know, persecution, religious persecution in China is a thing that the RLC has been very engaged in and paying a lot of attention to. Not just the persecution of, of uh, Christians who are a minority population in China, but also and especially to Uyghur Muslims. Mm-hmm. Dr. Moore previously has spoken about this, has done videos uh, speaking to this. And uh, right now, China's communist government is working to suppress the rights of religious minorities in China because they represent to the government apparently some kind of threat to uh, its authority. And so Mm -hmm. this is something that Christians uh, in the United States should be especially mindful of and faithful to pray for. So I would encourage you to go and check out this article and just pay attention to content as you see it about persecution that's going on in China. Right. Our policy team in D.C. is faithful to keep up with that and keep us updated. Absolutely. And so to move on to uh, one final piece from our website this week, uh, Andrew Walker uh, wrote a piece about uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Mayor Pete is famously known now as uh, one of the front runners in for the Democratic nomination for president. He has kind of styled himself as being a moderate, reasonable voice uh, in the Democratic Party. And he often tries to appeal to this more sensible, pragmatic, moderate lane as he has you know, been working his way through the primary. But recently he sat down with columnist uh, Michael Gerson, who writes for the Washington Post. And Michael Gerson is a Christian and evangelical. And he sat down with Mayor Pete to have a wide-ranging discussion about a number of issues. And as they were talking, one of the things they touched on was the issue of religious liberty. And whereas previously, uh, during one of the early primary debates, when Beto O'Rourke had made some comments about religious liberty and about speaking about restricting uh, protections for nonprofit organizations that refused to toe the line in terms of endorsing same-sex marriage. Beto O'Rourke made the comment that he would strip the tax exempt status away from uh, these organizations that that take that stand. And Mayor Pete at the time spoke out against that and said that he would uh, that he didn't think that uh, Congressman O'Rourke had thought through uh, fully the implications of, of such a statement or taking such a position. But in his conversation with Michael Gerson, he seemed to back away from that. As Andrew talks about in this article, he describes a a view of religious freedom that is very, very limited and would, in fact, strip away the tax exempt status and the the protections uh, that exist for organizations that that refuse to uh, give on their position on traditional marriage and refuse to endorse uh, same-sex marriage and and many of the things that are tied up in the sexual revolution. Right. And it's it's important that tax exempt status, that is not about churches being elevated to some sort of protection or protective status, that's actually about making sure that the state does not interfere with what those religious organizations believe. And so it's a very important structure that needs to remain in place. And so to think that a leading candidate uh, from one of the major parties is out there, as you said, espousing a view of very limited religious liberty protections, that should be concerning to Christians of all stripes. Absolutely, because at its root, religious liberty is a conviction that nothing should stand between a person and their God. And so when we're talking about restricting religious freedom, what we're talking about is having ultimately the government have a say in what people should believe about what is most ultimate and most sacred. Mm-hmm. That's a piece that's on our website. I really encourage you to go and check it out. Andrew did a great job, not only giving a rundown, but giving a, a full uh, throated defense of religious liberty, which is what we do here at the ERLC. So now moving on to culture, Brent, why don't you talk to us uh, for a few minutes about what's been going on in the culture this week? What are you paying attention to? Yeah, so this has actually been a, a pretty busy week from just about every conceivable 
place in culture. So I'll start off here. Axios, a reporting outlet, uh, talked about a disturbing trend that honestly all of us should be paying attention to, and that is growing distrust in the system. So in their post, they highlight a new study from the Edelman Global Trust Index that finds that distrust is a growing phenomenon across the globe. I, I know that we see and we talk about it here in our own American context, but it's actually happening in other places around the globe. As a matter of fact, their study said among 28 nations that were surveyed around the world, 18 markets have double-digit trust gaps between the informed public and the mass population. And it is a yawning gap uh, that is growing. So this study shows that mass populations often feel more pessimistic about their futures. And so in nearly half the markets that were surveyed around the globe, majorities of those mass populations do not believe that they will be better off in five years. So just looking through an American lens, that's concerning because we have seen growing levels of prosperity through most parts of our society. And even then, most folks uh, do have the opportunity to grow. And so it's just, it's weird that more and more people are being pessimistic about their future when the data would suggest we're actually living at a time of relative prosperity compared to the rest of world history. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point and a thing to point out because, you know, we talk about it all the time, how not just as a culture in terms of America, but around the world, uh, we are more and more prosperous, but yet we're feeling less and less secure. And so I think that this kind of growing distrust in institutions is something that certainly we at the URLC are trying to uh, keep our fingers on the pulse of, but also something that we're just paying attention to as this phenomenon continues to develop and play itself out. That's right. And and look, what, my next part is actually about one of those institutions, uh, the media. So we're one of those organizations that I would say, look, it's really helpful to engage with the media, to read a broad cross-section of outlets. So that way you're getting your news from a number of different sources. But just this last week, uh, two stories kind of show why there is some distrust uh, that is growing when it comes to the media. So the Washington Post, and this is probably going to be familiar for uh, a group of our audience that uh, went to Southern, the Washington Post looked at the Whitfield School in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a private K-12 through school that's connected to Highview Baptist in Louisville. And uh, I put it here, you know, it got its time in the barrel because it had said that a student there uh, who was shown in a picture with a rainbow cake, could no longer matriculate at that school. But what the Washington Post story failed to tell us is actually the student had a history of provocative behavior that went against the stated Christian principles of the school. So one of our friends, Rod Dreher, he's a Christian writer, he took a look at the situation in uh, his outlet, The American Conservative, and actually uncovered the real story that's happening there. Right. The media just reported uh, it seemed like they didn't do their job looking into the whole story where there had been multiple conversations with this student and her mom, I guess. But then also the school had there, – there are privacy policies. There are things that they cannot discuss mm. because of those policies. So it – yeah, it's frustrating because it's easy to just follow the outrage that's on Twitter that's right. or and it, whatever. And it just seems uh, odd that the Washington Post, a respected national outlet, would just kind of jump into the context in Louisville and report out about this story. Meanwhile, there's actually some really great stuff that, that's going on regardless of what you feel. So like over in Arkansas, Arkansas Baptist disaster relief workers rescued two elderly women 
uh, from their burning home. So they were fixing the roof of a neighbor's house that had recently been destroyed by a tornado, saw smoke billowing up from this one house, and just decided to jump into action. And that's why I love our SBC disaster relief workers and volunteers, because they do this kind of stuff all the time, and it often goes underreported, if not reported at all. Yeah, and so... We highlight that just to show the contrast between these two things where you have uh, the Washington Post in this case, and they're not they're certainly not the only ones who've ever been guilty of this, but this is kind of a glaring example where they take something that seems to confirm uh, a narrative that's already out there. They portray this Christian school as this kind of bigoted institution that, of course, they kicked this girl out of school. Uh, simply, look, she was wearing this shirt and, and sitting in front of this rainbow cake, and, you know, she, apparently all these assumptions are made, and now she's no longer enrolled in school there. Uh, that that was a very like one-dimensional and and ultimately just a shown to be a false uh, reporting of the facts there. And then you have stories like this uh, where something truly remarkable is totally overlooked because to take a less than to, to take a kind of cynical view because it doesn't confirm a narrative. It doesn't play into uh, right. what you would expect. Exactly. I mean, um, and just imagine that. I mean, back on the the Whitfield School, a Christian school upholding. Christian convictions. Like, who would have thought that? I mean, it's, it's like, really, this this actually is not a story. a story. So that was just it. Uh, tomorrow, this Friday, is the annual March for Life, uh, which began after the 1973 Roe versus Wade decision that uh, legalized abortion in the United States. This is now our 47th year uh, since abortion was decriminalized across the country. And so that is noteworthy on a number of levels for us here at the RLC. It is. Pro-life cause is near and dear to our hearts. So very important because it's near and dear um, to the Lord. And so we want to be an organization and a people as Southern Baptists who advocate and stand up for people uh, in all stages of life, the preborn and then all the way until death. So the ERLC is holding a few events in D.C. in conjunction with the March for Life. But our, as I call him, our blog ninja, Joe Carter, who not many people have actually met him and they actually question if he exists. But I know he exists because I've actually seen him and given him a hug. But is he is he a robot? That's he's, the real question. He's not a robot. Oh, okay. No, he's okay. flesh and flesh blood. Flesh and blood. Wow, that's amazing. He's just so that talented. So he has talented. dignity too is what Who we're knew? saying. Yes. Joe, Joe Carter so matters. He has, he has dignity. Um, but he, the reason we call him the blog ninja is because he can uh, produce content at a rate faster than anyone I've ever met. And it's good content. So he compiled five facts about the history of the SBC and the pro-life cause, which is very interesting. That was up on our site last week, but listeners can check that out. Yeah, and Um, when this podcast episode drops on Friday, some of our listeners may actually be coming back from the March for Life. And a noteworthy uh, event is happening there for the first time. That's right. I mean, it's something pretty huge. So President Trump is going to, for the first time ever, uh, as President of the United States, address the March for Life gathering uh, in person. And so we have had a number of presidents historically that have taken time to address the March for Life. Uh, President Reagan, I believe, addressed the march four different times. But uh, President Trump, who has addressed the march before, has never, uh, we've never had a president show up in person and give this kind of attention to uh, the pro-life cause or the pro-life movement. And so uh, it is noteworthy. It's very significant that the President of the United States would choose to spend in time and to highlight this cause. And so, if anything, it's our hope that this draws even more attention uh, to the pro-life cause as we are uh, seeking to stand up on behalf of the vulnerable and in defense of the unborn. We, our team was there last year. Was mm-hmm. it last year when yeah. Vice President Pence spoke? 
And the uh, the security, of course, was top-notch, was just raised a level or two, but not to detract from the importance of it, but as one who loves true crime and crime shows, it was really fascinating to me because there were snipers. You would look around and there were snipers posted on the museum buildings at the top. That's true. As a measure of protection. Whenever there's a motorcade, that that happens. Right. I just, I find that fascinating. So uh, I would say this, at the state level, there's a lot of great work that's being done on the pro-life front that deserves to be highlighted, but as our loyal listeners know, I'm going to be partial to Tennessee. So uh, Thursday morning of this week, Governor Bill Lee announced with leaders from our legislature, uh, they announced a comprehensive pro-life piece of legislation that many analysts think will be the most pro-life bill uh, ever in in Tennessee's history. So just some quick components of the bill. It would cement Tennessee as a pro-life leader by prohibiting abortion upon the detection of a fetal heartbeat, uh, requiring an ultrasound prior to an abortion occurring, uh, prohibiting an abortion where the physician is aware that the decision to seek an abortion is motivated by race, sex, or health or disability of the child, And then there's also uh, these really unique ladder provisions to ensure that Tennessee will ultimately have one of the most pro-life laws in the country. So if there is a court case that's working through uh, that will establish a new uh, maximum for abortion, Tennessee's would automatically go to that week. And so this is a really incredible uh, win that is the culmination of a lot of pro-life efforts over the years in Tennessee. That's right. And it's something that Christians should really be encouraged by. You know, a lot of times it is easy, speaking of cynicism again, to be cynical about the political process and whether or not we use issues like abortion as something just to get people to come out and vote for a certain candidate or politician. But in this case, I'm Bill Lee. I got to watch the press conference this morning. He unapologetically said that his goal behind backing this legislation is to see the number of abortions that happen in Tennessee to be reduced and hopefully to be reduced to zero. And so, you know, there is just something very encouraging about seeing a uh, a politician, in this case, the governor of the state of Tennessee, stand up unapologetically to say, I oppose abortion because I believe that ultimately it ends a life. And so he's doing, he's acting, and he's leading uh, his administration and in with in conjunction with the Tennessee legislature to to bring about this pro-life legislation that, like you said, is perhaps uh, the most robust legislation in the history of the state. Yeah, so we're really excited about that. On the international front, so Lens, you had mentioned earlier uh, about religious persecution in China. Well, all eyes are on China for a different reason uh, this week. The coronavirus has been uh, spreading, and so I know that a number of us in the office have talked about that. Currently, as of this taping, it's claimed 17 victims, and China has actually taken uh, an unprecedented step of shutting down the initial city where this came from, I think, as well as two others. That's incredible. A city of 11 million people, I guess, is what you have here in the notes. But also, I saw in the news, it made its way to LAX. There is a passenger who was complaining of symptoms that's been taken to the hospital, and those in contact have been quarantined. Yeah. And then I think there's a case in Singapore. Yeah. So watch out, are you all you germaphobes here in the ERLC. Um, all right. And so, and then on the political front, certainly one of the things that we've been talking about this week is the opening arguments uh, were made in the impeachment trial of the president of the United States. So both the attorneys defending Donald Trump, as well as the House managers who are prosecuting the case in the United States Senate, uh, they both have taken up their time making their opening arguments, and they are back in session 
beginning today at one o'clock with the next portion of the impeachment trial. And that's something that certainly us at the RLC, as well as um, most Americans, are paying some attention to. It is kind of, the thing that strikes me is that all of this is happening in the midst of still a chaotic news cycle where you would think that all eyes would be on this, but this is something that is, it's one thing that's going on, but it's by far the only thing that people are paying attention to right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's just a lot going on. And honestly, if you're not paying attention to it, because you've got you know, congregations that you're leading, you have uh, business lives, you've got uh, busy time at home with family, it's going to be easy to miss because the way that the the rules have been agreed to, this is actually going to be a relatively short exercise in the U.S. Senate. So don't blink twice. All right, on the lighter side of things, uh, we saw this week the two Super Bowl teams were decided. It will now be the San Francisco 49ers facing off against the Kansas City Chiefs. Lindsay, what did you think of those two games? Well, I don't really have a take except for the fact that our Titans almost made it. They had a great season. And also, uh, we have a co-worker, Julie Masson, who is really pumped. Her whole entire family, big Chiefs fans. So they may cry if they win. Yeah, you, you could hear the the shrieks of joy in Kansas City from, you could. from here. So, uh, And also, this circulated around the office this week. The office was available. I was corrected right before we, we went on here. Was available for a short time, the entire series, for $30. But now it's back up to 70 So we're going to have to keep our eyes peeled for that deal to come again because— it's leaving Netflix soon. Yes, and people are devastated. I'm devastated because it's losing West Wing at the end of the year. So that's right. And you know, thankfully, you, I've got the box set. And as a as a fellow owner, not a co owner, we own different box sets. But as a, a co owner, fellow owner of the box sets of the West <laughs> Wing, I'm also sad that it's leaving Netflix because that means you just won't have that kind of instant access uh, to just pull up the West Wing and to to watch a show. And so, um, can I give you a hot take? Sure, your hot take. Yeah, go ahead. Bring I kind it. of think the West Wing is boring. All right. Well, so. <laughs> That's your look at this week in culture. Appreciate that hot take because that's a searing hot take. It's I'm sorry. You could uh you could just really tell when the writer changed, right? Didn't that happen toward the end there's of only the really four, there's four seasons of the West Wing. After four. Yeah. Right, after, after four. four. But right. the whole first season, I it took me that long to actually get into it. So I'm sorry. Yeah, but when President Josiah Bartlett, right after uh, his predecessor was inaugurated is looking out the window of Air Force One for the last time. And the first lady asks him, what are you thinking about? And he says, tomorrow, man. And it cuts to the end right there. That's, I get did you, you right here. you have to here. get out your tissues? I, yeah, I did. I did. Well, speaking of uh, the West Wing, uh, that's a great segue because our next guest is also an avid West Wing fan. So in just a second, we're going to be talking to JT English, who's a pastor at the Village Church and oversees the Village Church Institute. And so let's talk to JT now. Well, hey, JT, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us this afternoon. Why don't we start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're serving in ministry right now. Yeah, thanks. It's really a joy to be with you guys. So like you said, my name is JT. I serve as a pastor at the Village Church uh, in Dallas, Texas. I'm on our executive team here. And really, my main responsibilities are I, I oversee the Village Church Institute, which is our kind of Christian education environment. And then TVC Resources is really uh, our ministry where we're trying to take some of the resources that we create here and, and resource uh, other churches uh, uh, with kind of free, basic, relevant Christian resources as we're able. 
JT, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Institute in just a minute. But first, we want to find out what's one thing God's teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Yeah, that that's a, whew, it's one of those loaded questions, right? We're going big. It's not big. just one thing, <laughs> <Really>? right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Honestly, it, uh, the one thing is over the past year, the Lord has taught me about His presence and mercy in the midst of suffering. Uh, he's taught that not only to me personally, as my wife uh, dealt with an illness, but also just in the people in my community. And it really is is something that's it's one of those lessons that's hard to learn, but it's just so so valuable as a pastor, being able to look people in the eye and say God draws near to people in the midst of the depths, and He meets us in the depths. That's just been something that has been on kind of refrain, not just for me, but really for our community here really for the last few years. That's great, JT. And then you mentioned the team that you serve on and and the team there at the church. So what are some of the things that you and the folks that you're leading are kind of paying attention to in culture right now? It's a great question. Uh, our our team here, like you said, they're they're just really, really a phenomenal team. The thing that we've really given a lot of time to over the last, I would say, 18 months to two years is thinking about how men and women can partner together in healthy complementarian partnership in the life of the local church. Now, of course, that's a big cultural issue when you think about sexual orientation, marriage, gender, and all of those things. But we're actually, uh, of course, relying on those questions, but really thinking about what does it look like for men and women to partner together in the life of the local church uh, in ways that both genders flourish. So we've written some papers about that. We're now trying to implement a lot of those policies here, and it's really been uh, really a fun season. Well, one of the ways that we see you working that out is through the Institute. You mentioned earlier, that's something pretty innovative that you've helped start in terms of bringing the church and the academy together. And just to embarrass Josh, he kind of has a man crush on you in terms of this. (laughs) Well, I've got one on him too. Oh, nice. (laughs) It's mutual. So how did this get started? Yeah, so I mean, a a lot of ministries really birthed out of kind of autobiography in your story. I care about this because I got saved uh, in college, and then I couldn't find a church that was going to grow and disciple me. So for me, going to seminary and going into the academy was less about becoming an academic and more about becoming a disciple. I just wanted to know my Bible. I just wanted to learn how to communicate my Bible. Now, I had a wonderful time in seminary, like a fantastic time, and I found myself asking the question continually, how can we get environments like this into the local church? How can we democratize discipleship in a way where it's more widely accessible to the local church? And that really just started as a dream in 2015. When I was hired here, we didn't have anything like that, and we founded the Village Church Institute, where we've tried to create all these spaces like Bible studies and forums and a training program and a residency to really try to create environments where people can can not have to leave the local church in order to lead within the local church. That's great. So, JT, this last question is kind of focused on your own professional growth, which has been incredibly impressive. So, you left Southern Seminary, and you moved down to what I affectionately refer to as, as Tennessee's first colony, Texas, uh, <laughs> to, work, uh, to work at the village. And that church— yourself included in this, is full of a lot of really influential voices uh, within our denomination. And and so you've risen to the top there as well. What's that experience been like for you? And uh, what things have kind of kept you humble as you have become more of a visible leader within the SBC? Yeah. Uh, wow. It's it's kind of just one of those weird, surreal questions. I don't I don't think of myself like that. And I'm not just saying that with some kind of false sense of humility. We're, we're just pastors here. And really, that's modeled from the top down from our leadership. So Matt Chandler is our lead pastor here. And though he has a big platform in the evangelical world, 
his biggest priority and his greatest desire is to simply be the pastor of the village church. And that just rubs off on a lot of us. For us, people are what are important. Having lunches and coffees and and conversations and doing hospital visits, that's what our days are like here at the village church, just regular pastoral ministry. And when you stay close to the sheep, it's really easy to stay a, a shepherd. And so that's the way we try to view ourselves here is we're grateful for the opportunities that the Lord's given us to perhaps speak into to greater issues or to help resource other churches. But God hasn't primarily called us to that. God has primarily called us to simply be pastors, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as it's found in the scriptures, and to hopefully see sinners not only repent and find their hope in Christ, but to grow into maturing Christians over the course of their lives. Man, that's that's a really good and encouraging word. Thanks for that. Yeah, JT, we just want to say, again, thanks so much for taking the time for us. We're really uh, grateful for our partnership with you guys and to uh, and for all the things you're doing to advance uh, the kingdom of God down there in Texas as you are equipping the church and other churches as you're raising up disciples and training people of what it looks like to uh, live for the kingdom of God, uh, both in the local church and in the public square. And so we're just really grateful for you taking the time today. Well, before we jump off, let me just extend the Thanksgiving back to you guys. The ERLC is a wonderful partner for us in ministry. We're often looking to you to to blogs, to podcasts, and you guys are really setting a lot of helpful trends and trajectories for us uh, in the church. So thanks for the good work you guys do. We're grateful to be gospel partners. Absolutely. Thanks, JT. You bet. One of the coolest things about getting to work here at the ERLC are just the conversations we share with one another. And so uh, each time on the podcast, we're going to be sharing things that we would normally talk about in the lunchroom as we sit down together uh, to share meals and talk about what's on our minds. And so each episode, we're just going to take a second to share one thing that is on our minds that we can't stop thinking about. And so Brent, why don't you go first? So this week, a, a new book was released by our friends and partners uh, in the, the pro-life and pro-adoption space, Lifeline Children's Services. Their executive director, Herbie Newell, wrote a new book called Image Bears, Shifting from Pro-Birth to Pro-Life. And it's an incredible resource. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore uh, actually barbed it and uh, certainly would commend it to all of our readers because I think it will be helpful in your personal walks and in your church work. Lifeline does such great work. So in our age of technology, one of the good things about our smartphones is that there are so many ways to be able to engage with Scripture. And because I need to be engaging with Scripture more and more, um, I one of the apps that I found through a friend is called the Read Scripture app, and that's what I've been thinking about lately. It uses the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, they use art and storytelling uh, and videos as a way to help you understand the grander themes and storyline of Scripture. And so you can read through the Bible, and then also as you're, you hit certain markers, you watch these videos that explain like the book of Genesis and the theme of Messiah and the theme of holiness. So it's been a really good help for me uh, as I'm seeking to to really dive into Scripture. That's awesome. And I saw some people talking about it even online this week about uh, personal Bible reading being a thing that is just life-changing and transformative, and I could not agree more. Uh, Anything that you can do as a Christian to spend more time or be more committed to just daily Bible reading as a discipline is something that can change your life. For my resource this week, I'll talk about something else that I love, which is movies. Uh, We have basically an informal movie club here at the URLC. We're constantly going to uh, see movies together, Uh, and one of my favorite genres of movies are just war movies. And so right now there's a great movie out called 1917 and it's about World War One. And so for me, that was a really... Uh 
the film itself is just fantastic. And I really enjoyed it because as much as I enjoy uh, world history and specifically American history, uh, I and I've read tons and tons about different wars. The World War One is something that I've often neglected as I've been uh, studying through various wars in American history. And so the movie does an incredible job of, of telling a story uh, and, and highlighting just some of the realities of World War One, And so I'd encourage you to go and check that out. I've heard it's amazing and beautifully shot. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get in the theater and see it. You should join the movie club, Brent. Hey, I'm not allowed to be a part of the movie club? Here we go. So you're in now. You're in now. Great. And uh, apparently I'm in now. So, I mean. Well, Lindsay, one of the things we want to do uh, every episode before we sign off is just leave our listeners with an ERLC resource. So what is the resource this week? So in honor of the March for Life, we're sharing a talk by Karen Ellis from our Evangelicals for Life conference last year. It's called Pro-Life and Civil Rights, Loving Our Unborn Neighbors. And we hope it stirs you to advocate for the most vulnerable among us. We hope you enjoyed that clip and we really appreciate you listening to the ERLC podcast. If you like the podcast, uh, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going to the app store and leaving us a rating or review. Uh, We'll be back next Friday with more content. I am persuaded that the most valuable work of human and civil rights is on the ground and teaching a culture to value life and human potential in all its forms and stages through action that reflects such. My activist friends tell me that through such efforts, the demand for abortion is on the decline. Good. I do hope this indicates that public opinion is changing. We learned during the civil rights movement that legislation is indeed a powerful tool for saving lives, but we also learned that legislation cannot do what the gospel of Jesus Christ can. Legislation alone cannot change hearts. The end of cycles of dehumanization, the end of the disregard for human life at all levels comes only through the telling of the transformative power of the affirmation of life through Jesus Christ. And I say to you again, life is neither a progressive issue nor a conservative one. It belongs not to Republicans nor Democrats. It is an issue of respect for all of humanity. It is an issue of hope. It is an issue of wisdom. And for the Christian, especially the right to life, it is a biblical issue. And God will testify of himself that his word is not owned by any earthly political party or cultural movement. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Our stories join in revelation and deliverance into the masterful heavenly chorus that comes down from heaven like a healing rain like a balm for the soul and a hope for the future. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And so it is promised, shall we.